and welcome back to Rethink Real Estate. Folks, today I'm talking about a topic that might not be appropriate to residential real estate, but at the fringes of residential real estate, there's been a great deal of hype around the commercial debt resetting that is going to be happening over the next number of years. For some of you that don't understand what I'm talking about, there's about $2 trillion that they're saying at the moment that is going to reset in the office market space. So today we're joined by Cameron Lindy. He is the first vice president um, of CBRE here in Orange County, more specifically Southern California. Um, But Cameron is an expert in the office space. And again, whilst he specializes more so in the Southern California marketplace, he's part of CBRE, which is obviously one of the largest commercial companies in the world. So therefore, they are armed and equipped with some incredible information on the commercial marketplace. So I thought it would be a great conversation to have about the future of that space. How has it evolved since COVID? Is all of the drama that is out there in the media at the moment about this $2 trillion resetting and all of these big buildings in some of the major marketplaces that are empty and the revaluation that's going to happen and all of the debt that is held by regional banks, is it as bad as the hype is? So Cameron's going to take us through that today. We're going to talk through what what does the commercial marketplace look like moving forward. He is a specialist in the office space um, and also we speak about different parts of the commercial marketplace to give you a little bit more in-depth nature of commercial real estate. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Rethink Real Estate. My name is Ben Brady, and this is a real estate podcast aimed to deliver sales strategies, marketing tips, and business insights from industry experts and myself to build a listing-focused business for the future. Let's get into it. Well, Cameron, welcome to Rethink Real Estate. Thank you for having me today. It's it's a topic that I'm excited to speak to yourself about because your expertise is mainly in the office commercial market, um, certainly in the Southern California part of that marketplace. But obviously, um, you know, working for a large organization and certainly having your finger on the pulse in the commercial sector will give us an understanding of what's going on from a national perspective. Because I have to be honest, I don't know whether it's, you know, overhyped um, or hype might not be the right word or it might be uh, you know people trying to look for drama where there may or may not be drama but the commercial marketplace since COVID and 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 in the media certainly at this point has just taking is just taking a battering from an office perspective in the major marketplaces anyway so I just want to get first of all from a from diving straight into it. I want to get your feeling on the overall office commercial marketplace in in the regions that you operate, and then in the major marketplaces as well. Well, I, there's a couple different conversations to be had, and and no, this is all real life. And in in the post COVID world, you know, we saw things pre COVID where everyone was talking about companies were talking about culture and how important that was, and then. You know, right, wrong, or indifferent, we saw, you know, in the COVID world how applicable it was for everyone to work out of their houses. And, you know, the, the, the great migration back home and the hybrid workplace and, you know, uh, some employers, and we saw it day one, a lot of employers, national employers, big employers said our whole, our whole workforce is going to work from home in, in perpetuity. And now, you know, slowly but surely, a lot of those big employers have said, hey, like, we're not as productive as we used to be. <laughs> and we're going to make people, you know, kind of come back to work. Now, in that 
COVID world, you know, it, employers lost a lot of power because they wanted to keep their employees. So the pendulum swung in favor of the employee. And even if employers said, we're going to let you go, people would find a work from home solution. And, and now over the last bit of time, we're kind of seeing the pendulum swing back the other way. But, you know, it is still right now challenging based upon uh, unemployment figures for uh, owners or business owners to necessarily lay people off. But we are seeing them trying to take command a little bit more in depth. So that is one component of things. But the real component then is, you know, you have these buildings throughout major markets that had employees that those leases have now expired. And, you know, there, there, there are vacant buildings out there or, you know, tenants or landlord. I'm sorry. Uh, owners have or companies have downsized and say, you know, as a whole, we're going to downsize to zero or 20%. So a tenant who was in 30,000 square feet may now be in 15,000 square feet. So you're seeing a glut of office space coming back to the market. So, so, but that said, let's talk about some more regionalized marketplaces. Like right now, if I wanted an office space in Newport Beach, you know, realistically going to Fashion Island or in the areas that, you know, you know quite well, I can't get that. You know, like for for a discounted rate, you know, if it's really good office space, don't get me wrong, there's obviously still deals out there based on decrepit buildings. But but I guess that, you know, in in those areas, you know, it still seems that the regional marketplaces are doing incredibly well. It's the major markets like San Francisco, Seattle, um, Midtown, New York, um, you know, uh, probably also San Diego downtown that have really been hit. Is that your view? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, multiple, a multitude of things that come into play. I think on a, on a different level, I would say that, I mean, San Francisco has its you know, own set of issues. L.A. has its own set of issues. I mean, and this is more anecdotal. I feel like me as being an Orange County native, people from San Francisco and specifically L.A. typically haven't loved Orange County. Yeah. But I feel like in my realm of people, I've seen more migrate from San Francisco and L.A., to Orange County than ever before. You know, I, I don't know if that's necessarily fact, but we're, we're seeing them kind of get out of the, some of those big cities. To your point about Newport Beach, and, and, and this is a bigger story, we are seeing employers really migrate to what we call like just amenitized buildings or something that has a different offering. You know, if it's just an office building, what we call commodity office, that's just back offense, previous insurance company occupied space there with no amenities, you know, there's no drive for people to go there. But case in point, you know, Newport Beach, uh, Newport Center, or some of the newest buildings throughout Orange County, they've actually seen some great leasing velocity because they have on-site amenities, they have gyms, they have food on site, you know, a multitude, and they're offering something that's a bright new shiny building that company owners are saying, I need to bring my employees back to the office. So I got to offer a cool office for them to come back to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that commodity office space that's really struggling. Yeah. I think that it's, it's such a difficult conundrum and this is outside of the realm of what we're talking about today, but it's a really difficult conundrum from a business owner perspective is that what do you do with the team? You know, some of them really want to thrive in that office environment. Others, you know, they really enjoy the work from home perspective. And I think that it is a conundrum in all, all, all sectors at this point. But I, the one thing I really want to dig into today with you a little bit further is the, the, the focus on 
the, from the media's perspective on this so-called refinancing or reset in the commercial debt market. Now, I'm going to say some things here that I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, it's just my general knowledge of it. I'm not an expert in the field whatsoever. So please, I want you to prove me or I'm happy to be proven wrong in these situations. I've basically just taken the glut of information that is out there and trying to assess it from my own perspective. As a leader of a company, you've obviously got to have your finger on the pulse. But I, I guess that the thing that I've taken into consideration is that there is upwards of 50% vacancy rates in some of the areas like LA, like downtown LA, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, even Chicago and some of these areas. And these massive high rises and the and the view of which like I heard somebody say one time that I think I've repeated a few times on the podcast is that the high rise will be like or the or the skyscraper will be like the pyramids they'll look beautiful but serve zero purpose because a lot of these buildings cannot be re um, repurposed into residential it just financially wouldn't make any sense the way that they laid out the amenities blah 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 blah, blah. so what you've got is then this reset that's coming up over the next number of years where the buildings are going to have to be refinanced. These buildings are so occupied, so unoccupied that then their value is going to be a lot less. So therefore the refinancing is not going to, to, to go well, so to speak. Then you put the next part of the crisis in play is that 80% of all commercial debt is held by regional banks because the bigger banks don't hold that. I don't know whether that's true or not. That's just what I've heard. And then the next part that then I throw on top of that even further um, is that, you know, that then muddies the water even further for me. I, I, I listened to this gentleman who's one of the largest commercial portfolio managers within North America out of a company out of New York that said, yes, that is always the case in the commercial market. There's always upwards of 20, like a couple of trillion dollars that needs to be reset over a seven-year cycle. It's not that big a deal. The big deal is going to be is the vacancy rate. So with, when these buildings are then valued again, is that then the banks will have to take haircuts and they will renegotiate because they are so scared to get the keys sent back to them because then they're left with the Transamerica building in San Francisco that they can't sell to anybody. You know, when when they don't mind a residential person sending their keys back in because they know that they could probably sell it eventually. But when you've got the Transamerica building that's the keys get sent back for that. They're like, oh shit, take them back. So I know that I've just thrown a lot at you. Yeah. That's just the general perspective of things. That's where the waters are muddied. Can you try and make some sense out of that for me? Well, I, I, for someone who says they don't know, I think your synopsis was pretty head on. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, so I guess the moral story is it's really going to be hard to tell. You know, this is very real. Um, for many of us, we we argue that it's it's worse than the you know kind of 2007 from an office perspective because you got to remember in that that time, the mortgage industry kind of led the front, but most other companies were doing pretty well. Hmm. Um, and you just had a big flood of space come back that was mortgage related. Now, you know, as a multitude of things, yes, this debt thing is really, it's, it's a real thing. And for your point, these buildings are going to have to, they have floating debt that is going to come due at lease rates of whether it's vacant or below what they underwrote. Um, we're also in a scenario that um, yeah, they're not going to be able to refi, but the banks don't necessarily from what we hear are, aren't going to want to take these buildings back. So they are going to restructure things. But how long can that go? Hmm. And dovetailing that with our previous conversation of there are going to be buildings that are OK, but the commodity stuff, those buildings that just don't offer anything special are going to have some real challenges. I mean, the skyline in L.A., I think it was, you know, out of the 12 towers in downtown L.A., six of them have gone into bankruptcy here in Orange County. 
There are two, call it three buildings that recently traded um, that are class A high rise buildings, more commodity office in nature that sold for roughly 15, uh, 50% of what they were purchased for within the last, call it six to 10 years. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, there's going to, who, who knows how it all plays out. You know, to your point, there are going to be buildings that are going to be in theory repurposed for residential. Uh, most people think that cities and municipalities are going to work with whatever they can because there is a housing shortage, but that's not a slam dunk either due to the fact of just the functional obsolescence of a lot of these buildings, the cost. So there's a myriad of things that come up and we're just too early to truly understand what that looks like. Yeah, it's a it's a really curly space. Um, what do you what do you say to the comment of this gentleman out of New York? Maybe it might just be pure blind optimism in the sense that he's like, yes, there's always a couple of trillion dollars that needs to reset every seven odd years. There's always a couple of trillion dollars that's floating out there. Um, is that true in the commercial sector? I, I'm not educated enough in that realm to really answer that. But I mean. Based upon 2007, I mean, there was a correction that take, took place. Sometimes I think in asset managers, investors kind of forget what the past looked like. Yeah. And, you know, we sometimes joke of where the market is, is, you know, every so many years, the values go down, then they go up and then they go back up again and then they go back down. So there is a, diff, a definite cycle as speaking to the amount of capital that's out there, it's hard for me to speak of. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I, I think that the, the the thing that, speaking of capital, the other environment that I'm curious about, and obviously you, uh, you are on many sides of the commercial marketplace and understand it a little bit deeper than I do. I've just never understood the lending space in the commercial sector. And obviously there seems to, there seems to be with the interest rates obviously rising, there seems to be this this difficulty in any lending marketplace, forget commercial, but then you add on top of it the vacancy rates that are there and then the overall um, uh, fractured perspective or fractured environment of the commercial lending market. Is it true that you know 80% of commercial debt is held with inside the smaller banks? Is that, first of all, that first statement, is that true or not? Oh, gosh. Again, I, I don't necessarily know. I mean, yeah. I, I think that the, the debt within that, it really depends. I mean, in a lot of these assets, are of, of the total number that's a likely number but yeah. it depends on the kind of the, the the food group for what you're talking about i mean yeah. if you're talking about you know 100 or 200 million dollar assets then you know you're going to look to large institutional banks yeah but and and also there's you know within that there's capital most buildings have a capital stack within them that have a number of different lenders playing a number of different roles. So it, it, it is really hard to, to tell you, but I, I mean, I think that might be a good segue is, you know, we kind of break this down of like capital markets is institutional investor, investors, REITs, real estate investors, um, I'm sorry, um, insurance companies, all, all those usual suspects. And, you know, call those folks used to invest in properties, you know, 20 million to 100 million or 200 million. Now we've seen high net worth individuals kind of come into the mix because that those institutional investors, because of debt, it's the market's paralyzed. So they can't buy anything. They're losing assets. 
But now we've seen high net worth billionaires looking at buying a lot of the assets. And some of the ones I just mentioned were bought by just wealthy families who are putting their capital and paying cash for them. They have two levers to pull. They have the opportunity to buy the asset because they either don't need debt or can go to their private lender who has a business relationship with them and say, we'll lend on it. And they don't have the underwriting requirements that an institutional group would. So they're able to buy something like that. At But they're not looking at things from a cap rate perspective. They're just looking at kind of returns over a long term and they can really write their check as needed. So there's the institutional groups, there's the private capital or high net worth, and then it kind of trickles down to the lower end, like the, what we call the owner user, the local company that just wants to own an asset. And we've seen, you know, in that world, interest rates have gone up 250 basis points in the last year. You know, so call it from mid fours to fives to, you know, from you know, high sixes to high sevens. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a big spread, but at least in Orange County, you know, we have a lot of people who've got a lot of dough and they put a lot of money into their businesses and they're, they're, they're doing okay. But the problem is, is when they're going to be willing to sell, you know, inventory is still tight. So there is still a market for it, but you know, it still really hurts. And then yeah. a, a subsector of that is the SBA, the small business component, where you're allowed to put 10% down. Interest rates there have gone from 6% to probably 10% in the last yeah. year. So like that's a, those are big numbers, especially if you're a kind of a small entrepreneurial organization. Are they big numbers that can these can, can do they make sense these increases? Right when you're selling somebody something or you're talking to somebody about something, do they they still make sense, or is it just that people are uh, have been so used to it being so low for so long that they just think that it's outrageous? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think that it still makes sense for some because there is again smaller entrepreneurial groups. They they want to take pride in ownership, and they also want to secure their future. You know, we've seen things really slow on the office sale perspective. However, the the industrial market is still less than 1% vacant. So buildings are still moving. Along those lines, we're seeing a significant amount of activity with industrial buildings, with limited office within them, truly distribution type buildings. Now things are sitting a little bit longer, but there's almost no inventory from a sale perspective throughout Orange County right now. So when a building comes to market on the industrial front, it's still getting a lot of activity. Yeah, I th yeah, the industrial front seems to still be going really, really strong. Um, I have a friend of mine that's in some industrial development stuff and 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 like new development, and he says that they're, they're slated for the next ten years based on the land they've already purchased, based on their projects that they've done, based on the demand for the marketplace at the moment. They haven't slowed their timeline down at all in in any frame for the last two years, um, and even. With any type of headwind from the other side of the office market or anything along those lines, still haven't slowed it down. So, is that still your view on the industrial sector? Well, I, I don't know. The last time you spoke to your friend, and I think that's a good trend, but it does feel over the like the last two months. You know, we have seen more inventory come to market. We have things, you know, a, a little bit slower. You know, we're not necessarily seeing multiple bids at the same time. One coming over the top. We are seeing some more concessions out of landlords um, from a renting perspective. 
not, and those concessions haven't really gotten to a point where they're dropping their rate, but they're offering additional free rent. They're offering additional tenant improvements. They're offering additional other things um, that are sweetening the deal for tenants. But you know, we haven't seen things drop. I mean, there's still good velocity, but it's not what it was nine months or so ago. So, so maybe a chink in the armor for the yeah, industrial guys who have been untouchable for the last long uh, bit of time. It's been so untouchable for so long, just yeah. from an outsider looking in, not even having any detail. But speaking of outsider looking in, you know, if we were going to, for example, not to patronize the audience or myself too much, but, you know, I guess that if we were going to use crayon to describe the different sectors in the commercial market, because I think that the the one thing that I believe that residential real, real estate people sort of definitely do when they speak on commercial, they lump it all into one. They just go, hey, commercials, commercial. Uh, there are so many different sectors and nuances that if we were going to, if people really wanted to obviously understand the commercial marketplace a little bit more, Cameron, how do, how do they, how do they need to look at it? What sectors should they look at and how should they section it up? So to speak. Well, I I mean, I guess the, the major food groups would be, I mean, real estate like finance has a million different aspects to it, much like law, but I mean, the major food groups would be office, industrial, multifamily and retail. And, and, and that's what you're going to look, you're going to look for. And, you know, what we think, especially based upon like from a lending perspective, you know, bigger real estate managers are kind of shrinking the belt. I mean, maybe they, they'll say they used to have to have 20% office in their portfolio with everything going on. They're shrinking that and people think they're going to grow multifamily and retail. So those two could become the darling. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are the those are the major food groups, and that's what people look like, and and and, and things kind of all fall within that. Yeah. So that poises a few questions from my perspective because you've just sort of triggered a few things for me. The multifamily space it seemed to have gone under a bit of pressure over the last twelve months. Um, you know, it sort of it was the, it was its own darling there for a period of time. Certainly, from a residential perspective, is that yeah. uh, is that that's probably the where where you and I are the most connected from the residential resale to the commercial space. Is that you know at the end of the day, we're still selling these in a residential format, but they're getting commercial lending for any spaces over five units. I think it is depending on where you are. Um, and you know, we've got a building in Virginia that's now seven units that we redeveloped, and then found ourselves in a tough place trying to refinance that building based on the lending situation but I, I guess that the multifamily space for so long was seen to be this this new thing there were funds being created left and right you know there probably still is what is your general take on the multifamily at this point again I, I'm and that's that's not necessarily my specialty so I can only speak anecdotally um, you know I mean it feels like in those I've speak, spoken to you know Orange County is somewhat insulated and you're gonna you're gonna be able to buy in Orange County the the um, and certain ports of LA or San Diego, it, they do feel like the safer buy, even though values are still high. Um, we are again with interest rates going up, we're seeing less exchanges, which is another driving force in all of these things. Um, not to say that they're not out there, but you know, when people are pressed to exchange into something as opposed to paying tax ramifications, it does have a tendency to drive up market. Um, on a side note, I've had discussions with, you know, some of my counterparts in Arizona or Texas, and, you know, there is a slight undertone of being scared in those markets because 
you know, there is so much land hmm. that if, you know, a developer comes and entitles, let's just say a thousand units, it really changed or 10,000 or whatever the numbers, it changes the market and they have the land to do it uh, versus areas that are a little bit more dense. You know that you're not just not going to have a glut of inventory that comes to the market. So I would urge those to, who are looking at multifamily and other areas to truly understand what the exit strategy might be, because in areas that have an expanse of land, you know, it's easy to build on. And if, you know, it, it could undercut you if you're trying to really plan for rent growth. It's, it's interesting that you, it's interesting you say that is that it's funny to see these different marketplaces. We get to see marketplaces all over North America and California, obviously the values stay pretty high based on the perspective of the fact that you can't find more to build on the beach. Okay. Whereas, whereas you look at then, you know, you go to Oregon and some of the marketplaces there, whilst they've seen great growth, I think that growth is leveled off because there is more land and it is easier to develop and, and there is more inventory that's constantly coming to the marketplace. And in Oregon, for example, they could build as many homes they want at this point and they could still fill them. But again, Again, it does put some type of pressure on the market. And I think it's a, such a phenomenal point that people don't look at in those. Yes, it's great to go and buy a building in Texas with, you know, five, 10 units and you only pay $700,000 for it or something along those lines. And the returns look great, but it is one decision away from really ruining that entire investment for a period of time. So the other part, I know that obviously speaking to it anecdotally is what we're doing here in the different sectors is retail. I've just been surprised that retail has still stayed as resilient as what it ultimately has, considering that even before COVID, there was talk about you know, the online nature of things, just pure threat to the retail market. I believe the retail market has been under siege for, geez, the last decade. Yeah, I mean, and, and the retail is the sector I'm the weakest in, so I'm really only going to be able to speak anecdotally. But I think you know a lot of retailers have been able to define, redefine themselves I also do feel like there's a lot of personal services that have shift, shifted into retail. Um, you know, you're having, I mean, I, I have a client who's um, has a number of different fitness brands who are kind of going on a massive expansion from a, a fitness brand and, and I guess, and is, is going to be looking at expanding their retail footprint and having various studios. So, uh, you know, again, I'm based here in Newport Beach where uh, a kind of activity is paramount. So we see that. Now, uh, I can also see if you're in a little bit more of infill areas, if it's big box industrial, I mean, big box, big box warehouse that's been, I mean, sorry, big box retail that has been vacated. I don't know what we're doing with that, but there's also yeah. going to be, you know, the, the Amazons who will gobble, gobble up space to have that next mile in, in order for you to go to. So, um, you know, I, I don't know what retail looks like, but it, it, it always seems like a tough road to hoe, but I feel like they're going to become the darling in certain areas. Yeah, in certain areas for sure. But I guess that when we come back to your specialty and your sector of things in the office space, I, I, I guess that I want to talk a little bit about, you know, there are a lot of people out there that have seen tremendous growth over the last few years that are going in and opening up their own real estate offices. And and as you've seen and you've helped our network and some people within our network with the with the growth um, that they've had, I want to talk about going into, I want to talk about somebody making a decision to sort of go into some office space and somebody that uh, that is making a decision regardless of where they are in North America at the moment. 
what are the what would be the first thing that you would take them through in making a decision on a location? Like say they set on a location, say it's Newport Beach or say that it's anywhere, you know, in Southern California. What are the things that they need to consider when signing a lease, like terms, like what they can get with TIs? Because the one thing that I will say, and I don't want to offend anybody on the audio, in our audience, but I, people's deal knowledge when it comes to leases and the shit they get themselves into that then we have to bail them out of later is unbelievable. Yeah. I, in, in thinking about this, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that to, to take away from this is that we, we've talked a lot about purchasing and, and things of that nature. But, you know, if you go into Zillow, especially in your world, you can see what a house was purchased for. You can see all, all, all the different sale comps. But in the commercial market, there is no public database from a lease perspective. So if you you can't get lease information, it just it's not public. So other than someone going to a landlord and asking where the last lease was done, that's all they have. So a lot of people go in dark, specifically tenants, and say, well, the landlord is, you know, says the asking is $350 a foot, but they like me and they'll give it to me for $325. But me getting to do and be a part of hundreds of leases every year, know that that number may be more like $250 a foot. So I, I, I think bringing on a representative who can support and guide you through the process, who's constantly negotiating in these buildings. Again, it, 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 the ask is not important. It's where you're going to land on something and, and putting that, you know, that package together of what it looks like. You know, I, I see a lot of people get tied up of saying like, uh, I got the landlord wouldn't move on their rent, but they gave me two months of free rent. Well, I know the market is really six months of free rent. Yeah. So they have no way of knowing that. Um, I've also had people who I haven't had the opportunity to work with until after the fact saying like, yeah, the, they, the landlord gave me six months of free rent. But then I look at the lease and I said, well, the rate they charged you was like double the rest of the market. So they kind of get enamored with, you know, certain concessions. You know, our analysis is going through this with, for our clients is the rate, the free rent, what it compares to the five other buildings we're in this competitive set. So you kind of put it all in the meat grinder and you come up with an output that's going to be your average cost or whatever the case may be. But whatever indicator you need as a decision maker, we can help cater our, our search around that. I think I think that's such a great point is that you do go in so blind. Like uh, even me thinking about the last couple of leases that we've done as a company, you do go in blind. Like again, if you don't have somebody that is like yourself that's helping you, like it's funny, like, um, you know, some people that we are associated with directly is that like – I almost think that when people are talking about their business, right, and where they want to be seen in the image of their business and what it's going to look like is that there's almost more emotion involved in that in sometimes the place that you're going to live. And and people think that commercial is so when I say commercial, the leasing side of things, it either makes sense or it doesn't. You know, it, it's black and white. Not really, because at the end of the day, you need somebody to guide you through the minefield that is ultimately that in order to get you through it. Because you could end up making a decision that's going to cost you so much money in the long run, and something that ultimately could be the the straw that breaks the camel's back from your business surviving or not. Because I think that you would agree with me is that it's you know most of the time office rent or location rent is probably the largest expense within that business. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's evolved, but you know, typically, I mean, it's second behind payroll, but in this kind of economic environment in this post COVID world, you know, it's something we have to look at really, really closely because, you know, 
leasing a space in a business in a building that isn't going to be, I guess, helpful for you to bring your employees back to the workplace is is going to be the worst possible scenario as opposed to saving another 10% on rent. Hmm. If, 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 if you put yourself in a lease that you're, you're in a building that may be cheaper, but your employees don't want to come back to work because of that building, there's no sense for you to have that office. Yeah. What, what do you think it would like from a TI perspective, obviously it depends on landlord building, all of that type of stuff, you know, tenant improvements and getting that contribution, you know, how important is that up front? Obviously it depends on all different types of circumstances, but do you, have you seen some people that are more open to that of recent? Because that's a real major part. People, honestly, whenever we've started a location, people are like, oh, I think it's going to cost us 50 grand. Double it, and it's probably right. It's double, double whatever you're thinking, and ultimately it comes in at probably around that. Um, yeah, my running joke is for construction, it's either a thousand dollars or double whatever you thought it was going to be, no matter what it is. And, and, and I think that's why, again, why we put the tenant improvements under that, like that intangible concessions. You know, it's there. There isn't a market where it just says, you know, every building's going to get twenty five dollars a square foot. Yeah. What if the landlord's already spent that money? Or what if the space is really bad and it really needs $50 a square foot? So typically through the process, we go and make sure we're going wide, eyes wide open to understand what those construction costs are prior and either include that as part of the lease to make sure that the landlord covers it or understand exactly what those costs will be so we don't get into that situation after a lease is signed. Yeah, because once a lease is signed, you just there's there, it's complete exposure from a tenant perspective. You know how in residential people typically say that you need you know just over one percent for closing costs and things along those lines. Is there a rule of thumb when it comes to leases? You know, in 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 that sector, I know that that's a very general question. No, I mean again, it depends on the type of lease, um, but most leases, you, you know. I mean, you know, again, we're pretty diligent in our, our process where we're getting even moving and cabling costs, all of that identified. So when you have your complete analysis, there are no surprises. Our process is really based upon making sure there's no surprises and no oversight. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but I mean, I guess things always do come up in business. Um, you know, furniture is a, 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 a number that always surprises people. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's worse than buying a car. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and, and I think sometimes people get a, this kind of, uh, they hold on to furniture more than they want to, but then they want, the minute they want to get rid of it, they can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And they've paid $10,000 for a cube that you can't get a consignment shop to take it off of your hands. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'd say furniture costs are up and going back to the whole TI thing right now, we are still seeing as much as we're seeing construction numbers come down a little bit. They're still pretty darn healthy right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Unfortunately. Now, the final question on leases is that what would you advise somebody again, depending on where their business is at, but let's say that it's a startup location or, or somebody that's only been in business a couple of years and they're moving into a more permanent location term. Like, because I remember a situation that happened to us probably about twelve months ago, where one of our business owners of one of our franchises sort of they they came to us and said, "Hey, we need some help with this," and they signed a five year with another five year extension, and there was just it was just a very very long long loca- long lease. What is your advice when it comes to the terms of things? 
So it, it really just depends. I mean, we have to understand what the motivation and the long-term plans are. I mean, right now I, I'm representing companies who in some instances are saying, hey, we're going through this. We need a one-year lease. Yeah. And it ultimately comes down to information. I have other clients who say, I, regardless of what's going in the economy, I'm prepared to sign a 10-year lease. Yeah. So it really just depends on understanding what the motivations are. You know, I, I always say, and I echo the mantra of, we want to make sure that the business is driving the real estate and the real estate's not driving the business. So if someone comes to me and says, Cameron, I, I just want to sign a two-year lease, but I love this building and they're not going to lease it to me unless I do a five-year lease, then you just have to make a business decision. Um, kind of going back to the nuances of the lease, but there are avenues, albeit not all the time, that we can negotiate termination provisions. Again, I throw that out there just as an option and a concession that we're able to achieve sometimes to create a little bit more flexibility. Yeah. Um, it also depends on how the lease is structured and the entity for which it's in. So there are different levels to pull, but we don't ever want to have someone committing to a lease that puts them over their skis because that's the worst possible scenario. Absolutely. And again, that would just come down to working with somebody like yourself that ultimately could give everyone the lay of the land and, and just understand all of the nuances. Like guys, I have to, like, if I'm talking to the audience directly, I've probably done more leases than you like, and, and have more leases than your average person throughout all of the offices that we have and all of that stuff. But realistically, I still would have 50% of the knowledge that you would, Cameron, in the sense of everything that ultimately you've seen in all these individual locations. Like, it's just, it's so amazing the stuff you don't think about going through that moment. And I think it's important to work with somebody like yourself. But the final thing that just to wrap this up, I, I want to get your overall outlook for the next one year, five years in the office space nationally and i know I, that you know the 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 if somebody asked me that question i'd be like that's a shit question to ask me because like i like I, again if someone asked me about the real estate marketplace at the moment in the residential sector i'm like i'm not going to insult your intelligence by guessing i don't know i actually don't know you know so what 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 with that said what do you think's going to happen <laughs> well I, and i don't know but the question is timely and so last week our chief economist was in our office talking to us and um, you can say what you want about economists, but uh, I'd like to think they're smarter than I am. And their projection was that they see interest rates coming down beginning of 2024, um, kind of kind of part and parcel as it relates to kind of the, the upcoming election. And they think that that's going to be a driving factor. Um, I would say as far as an overall market from an office perspective, I think we're going to have some murky waters for the next 12 to 18 months. Um, it, but it really depends on what unemployment looks like. Um, but we are Orange County. We are the U.S. and we are pretty darn resilient. So I think people will start to come back and people will start to work more. Um, but it, it's really hard to say. But, you know, with interest rates starting to slide, you're going to see everything kind of the wheel start to turn a little bit more and activity is, will start to increase on all avenues. And that's my, I mean, that's what I see. Who knows what will play out, but that's what I see. Just another question that sort of come to mind. I'd love to see your perspective because I don't know the answer to this either. And maybe we just can have a consensus that we don't have any clue, but you know, there's, there's buildings that were built in the 70s and 80s. Like, and when I say buildings, I mean, like, let's talk about major markets for a moment. Let's talk about 
LA, San Francisco, New York, you know, all of these major markets. There are some buildings that I would walk past in San Francisco or in New York and I go, that place is a dump. You know, there can't be anything that you do with that. Do they just tear it down? Like, what do they do with that? So it really depends on the city uh, or the county. But what I should have mentioned earlier, I mean, there are a handful of buildings that were like low rise office buildings, class C throughout Orange County that have been knocked down and are they're now building industrial buildings, call it, you know, they're knocking down an 80,000 square foot office building and putting up a 130,000 square foot industrial building. And by the way, the rates on that industrial building are going to be higher than, than what they would have gotten for office. Wow. Um, so, you know, we, we discussed briefly like the re-entitlement, maybe looking at residential. But, you know, some of these buildings are just going to come down. And if they can't repurpose them in the residential, then they may knock them down to become residential or become, you know, um, you know, industrial of some nature, something with a roll-up door, because again, that market, at least throughout, I don't know, Southern California as a whole, but vacancy rates on the industrial side are less than 1%. Wow, that's that's ginormous, that's ginormous so, the difference. Um, but I mean, I think we all see those buildings that we go like, how is this building, how did people ever run their business out of it? <laughs> and how is it still standing? Um, and, and those buildings are functionally obsolete. I, again, I think over time, we'll start to come down. And then final sort of round out to this is that people that are listening to this that are looking in the commercial space or have clients that are looking in the commercial space, I, I guess that from an opportunity standpoint, where do you see some opportunity for purchase? Like, again, that is a very wide angle question, but, you know, is there is there a certain sector or certain sector within a sector within a sector that that people should be looking at from an opportunity basis? And what are the what are the key indicators of an opportunity gosh I, I don't know if i have an answer to that i mean i can okay. only speak from my book of business and that what surrounds me um i would say if you have cash and you can execute and move quickly there are going to be opportunities there are certain sellers who own buildings that have maybe on the office side that have been dragging um, because no one else can afford to get financing mm-hmm so I, I think there's going to be some opportunities on that front. Um, and again, I, I don't know the multifamily well enough or the retail to speak of it, but from the office and, you know, we're, we're slight, seeing a slight softening on the industrial side. But if, if you're well healed and can come up with financing or, and are willing to not look at a value one year after you bought it to think, oh man, values went down. If you're looking at it as a long-term hold, I think there's still an, a good, going to be a good opportunity to own something. Well, Cameron, we appreciate your insight into the commercial marketplace, certainly a sector that is getting a great deal of attention at the moment. And and I think that the reason we wanted to have somebody like you on is the, to sort of stop the speculating that happens in people's mindsets. I think there'll be a lot of speculation in that sector for a, a, quite some time to come because I think it just takes the attention away what's happening in the residential sector and it, and it takes the attention away from a lot of different things that are happening out there. But we appreciate your insight and joining us on Rethink Real Estate. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. So about 75% of our audience hasn't liked, followed, or subscribed to our podcast. It would mean the world to us, and it would help this podcast more than you know to expand our reach if you were to like, follow, or subscribe on any of the platforms that you're watching or listening on. Thanks again.